You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Christy Siebel. So Christy is a senior dietitian at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where she provides much needed guidance to her patients about optimizing diet at diagnosis, while treatment, and through the stages of overcoming. Christy's story is unique as she is a triple negative breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer survivor. And as an overcomer herself, Christy is familiar with all the dietary and life challenges that come with a cancer diagnosis. So she supports from a real life angle. So please help me welcome Christy to this episode of Connect Over Coffee, where we will talk to her about the very important topic of diet and lifestyle in overcoming ovarian cancer. So grab your favorite coffee or beverage. I have mine. And let's connect over coffee with Christy for the next 45 minutes to an hour. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we'll get it addressed. Try to get it addressed post the discussion. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Christy, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee, an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Christy. So before we, uh, you know, delve into the diet, the, the topic of discussion today, we would love to know a little bit about yourself and your breast and ovarian cancer diagnosis, if you would like to walk us through that journey. Sure. I was... I was 30 years old when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I had just had my daughter and so I was breastfeeding and there's a lot of changes that go on with your breasts when you're breastfeeding. So it could have been so easy for me to just chalk it up to that. Um, but because I had a family history uh, and I had been tested for the BRCA mutation and I knew that I had the BRCA1 mutation, I saw a doctor immediately. Um, and I was actually, the day I returned to work from my maternity leave was the day that doctor called and told me that I had triple negative breast cancer. It's very aggressive. We need to start chemo like now. And so I was just like, but I just got back to work. Um, so, you know, there's never a good time for cancer, but I just felt like, Oh God. And then, um, I was already working at MD Anderson and because I had already been seen there for just skin cancer screens, I already, already had a medical record number, which was key. That's very um, important to be able to get in quickly. If you're already established patient, you've gone through the new patient registration. So that was really helpful. Um, and then with my ovarian cancer, uh, that was Mark. Uh, I went in for surgery for a sit, we thought it was just a complex cyst um, and it was gonna be an outpatient procedure. And then when they got in there, they do like a frozen path in the OR and they send it off um, and it, it was cancer. And so this doctor I had worked with before because I worked at MD Anderson and she kind of knew, and we had a discussion about it beforehand, but knew my 
preference, which was to just take everything out. If you find cancer, get it all out, every single thing. Um, I was 35 um, and had been considering more children, but I was also not a, in a great place with my marriage. And so I was ready to, to tell them to have the prophylactic surgery and they, um, but instead they were going to remove the cyst. Anyway, it was in March of 2020. I don't know if y'all that date rings a bell, but that is like when COVID. everything shut down, everyone was like, if you got COVID, you were going to die. That's when I had this surgery, was in the hospital, found out I was going to get chemo. It's very scary um, to go through all of that when COVID was very new and I was, you know, concerned about my suppressed immune system. So you had no visitors, right? At the <clears throat> hospital at that time? Right. Well, no, they just had to um, scan them. My husband at the time, I'm now divorced, but at the time, left to go get closed for me because we thought it was going to be outpatient and then um or just toiletries and then when he got home he's like I have a fever I can't come back so then I was there alone for days I had um a post-op ileus which I don't know if any of y'all are familiar but it's similar to like a bowel obstruction and that nothing is moving and so your stomach descends and it fills with gastric juices and gases. And so you have to get an NG tube to decompress. Otherwise you will projectile vomit, which I did. And they were like, you know, I think you have an obstruction. Um, and so that was in 2020. And so four years later, I'm doing good. I went through, I didn't have to have radiation for either, but I had surgery and chemotherapy for both. And I will say, so I got carboplatin taxol, which is very common. I also got adramycin cytotoxin with the breast cancer, but, um, but I got the carboplatin taxol at two different times in my life and the side effects and the way it was on my body was completely different. And I thought that was really interesting because it was the same chemo regimen. Um, and I, I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. <laughs> Thank you for sharing, Christy. So, uh, you know, you mentioned that your triple negative breast cancer was uh, at an aggressive stage when you got diagnosed. What about ovarian? Did they catch it early or was it? Yes. As well? So because I have the BRCA mutation, actually both of mine were caught early because I was getting screened. So once you're tested and you have that diagnosis, then that allows for insurance coverage for more frequent screening and for screening that isn't that's outside of the guidelines. So for a 30 year old to get a mammogram is not going to be covered by insurance unless you have this diagnosis. So um, I was getting screened for both. I was due for a, a mammogram, but I was pregnant. So I got an ultrasound of my breast in April. And then I had my daughter in May. And then she she did not sleep well. She is who she is today. She um, is stubborn and just, you know, a lot of work. And I didn't sleep well. And I think the stress of that really, I'm sorry, the course, the the lawnmower people are here right now. Okay. <laughs> but the, I think the stress of that really played into it because by August, it was grade two, just based on size. So it had gone from undetectable by ultrasound in April to stage two in August. 
And I think that is why I always talk about stress management and why I think that's a really important priority. Um, and then the same with the ovarian cancer, I was being screened, um, getting transvaginal ultrasounds every six months. I, oh gosh, I don't even remember, but I, and they saw something and they were like, we think it's just a complex cyst. We are being hopeful. Um, but it wasn't. So they were both caught early and especially with ovarian cancer, catching it early is so important. Um, and that's why I think the knowing what your family history is and what your genetic, you know, predis predisposition is, is so important because then it allows for that more, you know, frequent screening, right. which is the lifesaver. It's why I'm here today. I'm right. sure of it. Thank you. Thank you for uh, mentioning that. So that was actually going to be my next question in the sense that cancer seems to be running in your family. Your mother got diagnosed with breast cancer prior to your diagnosis. And so when you went through that experience with her, did that prepare you in any way for, you know, for your own journey in terms of expectations, in terms of you know, what the future was to bring. This is this is for all our BRCA mutation carrier families. What would you share um, with them? What can I share? I was in high school. Well, when it's, my mom had a long cancer journey, but what I can tell you is what has changed in medicine from when my mom had cancer to when I had cancer is unbelievable, astronomical. It is a completely different, and, and honestly, what's happened in the past five years, in the past two, each year, it's everything is happening at breakneck pace. We are learning so much. Things are getting more targeted. I mean, my mom had breast cancer. I had grade two, triple negative, ER, you know, like yeah. just my diagnosis is like several sentences long, whereas hers is breast cancer. And yeah. <laughs> so just that alone. Um, but an interesting thing about that, my mom was treated at MD Anderson. And I remember one day I was in our hospital room and someone came in um, and was asking her questions and kind of, and it was a dietitian, And I didn't even know what that was at the time. I didn't know that that was a job. And I just um, was like, oh my God, because it brought to light that diet and lifestyle are things that you have control over. Nutrition is something that you can control a cancer diagnosis feel, you know, so many things you don't have control over. And so that felt really empowering. And I just remember thinking like, I didn't even know this was a job. And so I wish I knew the name of that dietitian, um, but I don't, I don't really remember much, but I do know that that was kind of what spurred me to, to be interested in this and what ultimately um, resulted in me ending up at MD Anderson. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. So, you know, I just wanted to, if you were to share the most challenging aspects of your cancer journey uh, with, with our friends that are listening, um, to tell us about those and how did you navigate and overcome them? Yeah, I think being a mom, you have a lot of mom guilt. I worked full time. Um, I was going through a divorce when I was uh being treated for the ovarian cancer. I luckily it was during COVID and I moved in, me and my daughter moved in with my sister and we had our own little pod and that was helpful because they could help with taking me to doctor's appointments. Um, but I think the 
that I look back on and that I know a lot of patients do, but I was just so hard on myself about, you know, why am I not doing more with my daughter? Why am I not doing so good at work? And I think, you know, if it were my friend going through the same thing, I would be like, oh my gosh, you're doing amazing. Why are you so hard on yourself? But when it's yourself. And so I think just understanding that we're all doing our best and that your best doesn't have to be perfection. No one has to be perfect, but just knowing that you're going to have bad days and that's okay. And, um, not being so hard on yourself. I think even just looking back at past me, I'm, I'm gentler on them, but I think we all potentially struggle with just holding ourselves to a much higher standard that we would hold anyone else to. Thank you for sharing that. That was beautiful. So, you know, I read uh, in one of those articles, you this is a quote from what you said, is that my patients uh, put what I was going through in perspective. So please tell us about this thought and what would you like to share with our overcomers on why you pursued, and you, you mentioned a little bit, but uh, in general, where you pursued clinical nutrition as a career. Yeah, so... When I was going through treatment for breast cancer, I worked inpatient at MD Anderson. And there were days that I did not feel good, that I was, you know, real down on myself, like, this is hard, you know, woe is me. But then I go into a patient's room who is, you know, I'm not the one having the bad day. They're the one having the bad day. They are in the hospital, they're admitted, you know, things could be much worse. And that is such an important mindset to just value the good things that are going on, to stay positive and know that things could be much worse. And so every day when I would see patients that were much sicker than me, um, that, you know, didn't have family there, just all these things that really, you know, wow, I'm so lucky. Mine was caught early. I'm, I'm not currently admitted in the hospital. I'm doing that, you know, so that really puts into perspective you know, that things could be worse and staying positive and upbeat. There's so much data to support not only, you know, prognosis benefits, but just, you know, well-being less, you know, you get through treatment easier, less side effects, just being positive and having hope has so much of an impact on you. So you have like a gratitude journal or could just, you know, each day kind of not be down on yourself and and recognize that things could be worse and that you have you do have good things in your life and that really helps mentally and physically i think absolutely thank you so coming to what you do now for uh, as a profession right as as so um tell us about the importance of diet in overcoming ovarian cancer and what would be your top 3 recommendations for our overcomers in terms of optimizing their diet while going through treatment or even like during the remission phase yes yeah, so our bodies are fueled by our diet. So, so important. Uh, let food be thy medicine. Um, I would say that the top things, especially for ovarian patients, um, is trying to avoid or limit saturated fat. And that comes from animal products. So meat and dairy, if you're consuming meat and dairy, choosing low fat or non-fat, 
even uh, reduced fat milk, it's less than whole milk, but it still has five grams of saturated fat per serving, which is pretty high. So you could even do 1%, which is, you know, even lower or, or skim milk. When choosing meat, choosing lean, low fat, or even um, like fatty fish, like the omega-3 fatty acids, which are heart healthy fats versus saturated fats. Um, and me personally, I don't eat meat. I would say I'm a flexitarian because I have um, friends and family that like go hunting and if they like catch something out in the wild, I always eat that. I like to try things, but overall I, I don't eat meat and that's just from a health and, um, you know, animal well-being perspective. But there is so much that, I mean, if we think about our diets throughout, you know, our whole timeline of evolution, it's primarily plants and that's how our bodies evolved. And when we did eat meat, it was, you know, few and far in between. And we worked really hard to get that meat in our day and age now where we are sitting <laughs> most of the day, all day, um, even in our recreation times or watching movies or gaming or things, it's just very sedentary. And that takes me to my second <laughs> tip is just moving more. Um, you don't have to join a spin class or anything, but being physically active, getting your steps in, I'm doing a, um, like we have a health fair at work in, in February and I have a little booth and I'm doing it on like daily steps. And so I've been looking into that and, you know, the 10,000 steps a day, which is kind of preset on watches or, you know, tracking devices is an arbitrary number. Um, and it can be kind of hard to get to that. And you, you can feel like, wow, I'm not even, but the takeaway is that around 700 7,500 steps a day, 7,500 steps a day is kind of the, the magic number. And that is more achievable. And that is something that will increase lifespan, reduce chronic um, health conditions and has cancer risk reduction benefits. So I try to do weight bearing exercises, which is also important for anyone that has gone through menopause, surgical menopause, or just you know, even chemo pause um, for weight bearing exercises helps with maintaining uh, bone health and your, your bone strength. And while I could definitely be better about being more consistent with that, I am consistent with the walking because it's my time, which is, I think also important, taking time for yourself to de-stress. When we do that, our um, stress hormones lower, like your CRP and everything. If you never give yourself that opportunity to, to just take things off your plate and, and have you time, then your stress levels never go down. And that also is not good for chronic disease and cancer risk. And so walking and having, you know, listening to a podcast or music, or just having you time, not thinking about work or other things, is beneficial in, in multiple ways. And I would say that's kind of what I've had to do. And it wasn't easy to be consistent with any type of physical activity. <laughs> um, but walking is an, is an easier one to kind of um, fit into your schedule and to just mentally wrap your head around. If you're like, I'm just gonna go for a walk and then 
if you can go a little further each time. And then if if you can carve that, if you, even if you do it with family members and get family members involved, then that's a fun family activity. And it's something that everyone can do. Your parents, your grand, you know, your everyone can get involved. Uh-oh. Can you hear me? I can hear you. So oh, okay. um, I, I was going to just uh, say that you... Um, talked about surgical menopause so um you know there are you know a few overcomers who are you know around your age that got um, diagnosed with ovarian cancer or younger overcomers that had to go through surgical and not natural menopause right and that usually comes with a bunch of side effects so from your own experience, were there anything in particular you did in terms of diet or lifestyle changes to kind of deal with that surgical menopause side effects that you would like to share? Yes, because surgical menopause is definitely more severe in that it's you have hormones one day and then you have no hormones the next day. And so side effects tend to be a little bit more extreme than natural menopause. But they're not forever. I don't have hot flashes anymore. So <laughs> hallelujah. But it did take a while. I guess I have them every once in a while, but it's pretty few and far in between. Um, but I do remember having like paper plates all over the house, just like wherever I would sit because I would need to like fan myself all of a sudden. <laughs> and that was like the only thing that would help. Um I mean, staying well hydrated helps. There are certain foods that can worsen hot flashes, like spicy foods or caffeine. Um, getting into like a hot tub or a hot bath is gonna trigger potentially a hot flash. And, and so I would always wear like layers because if it's maybe cold outside, but you have a hot flash, you wanna be able to take it off because if you haven't experienced it, and when they're intense, like in the beginning, it's like a full body. Like when I would see people on TV shows, put their head in the freezer. I always thought that was silly, but I get it now. <laughs> I could see how that would be relieving. Yeah, thank you. So let's talk about post-op recovery, right? So that is also a very challenging thing for our overcomers in yes. terms of regaining their strength, improving muscle mass, et cetera. So what kind of diet plan would you recommend for someone recovering from an extensive surgery such as ovarian cancer? Um, any recommendations that you would like us to, um, to know from you? Yes, a high protein diet. So any surgery is gonna increase your body's demand for protein for tissue repair and post-op healing. If you have an open abdominal surgery, that is, the demand is much higher. It's your protein needs are much higher than they were before your surgery. And yet you, a lot of times patients have changes in appetite or, um, you know, tolerance. They can only tolerate small portions. They have bowel changes. There's a lot going on that can impact your ability to take in more protein where, however, your protein needs are much higher. And so having, you know, some sort of protein supplement, like a a ready to drink protein shake or even using protein powder in a smoothie or just protein ingredients in a smoothie because if appetite isn't great a lot of times it can be easier to drink something than eat a meal and so having one of those high protein drinks as a way to supplement is really important i find that patients 
I don't, it's very difficult to do it without some sort of protein drink. And there's lots of studies that show regardless of the surgery and regardless of your intake patients that drink a protein drink for two weeks after discharge from their surgery have better outcomes and less um, complications and quicker recovery. And so the one thing I would say to focus on would be protein. And because when appetite isn't great, a lot of times protein foods are less appealing. These protein drinks or protein supplements are a great way to help meet your needs. And that's going to expedite healing and recovery and get you back to where you want to be quicker. Yeah. I've also heard that you mentioned the protein drinks. So I've heard that sometimes that can have like a, the powder that is could have like a chalky taste, which, you know, sometimes is not very, um, you know, appetizing. So are there any, are there any protein pills available that potentially we could look (laughs) into? I wish there is. I don't think there is, right? I don't think there is either, but give it time. I'm sure there will be. There are tons of protein, you know, products. Some are better than others, but there are like protein bars and protein cookies and they're made with protein powders. And so while, I mean, these aren't the most nutritious thing, but again, we have kind of short-term nutrition goals during this time, which is to give your body the protein it needs. Um, to prevent muscle wasting and to support wound healing and and repair. I would say trying to avoid things that are really like sugary and, and fatty because that's kind of more pro-inflammatory and that can also hinder healing. Um, And then just if, if it's a surgery involving your bowel at all, you know, just kind of lower fiber, lower fat, small, but frequent meals, are going to be better tolerated. Um, if you don't love the taste of the protein powders, you can always use like a, a protein shake as a base for a smoothie instead of using protein powders. So if you had like a premier protein, for example, um, and you blend it with, you know, frozen fruit or with peanut butter, banana, um, and then it's already high protein and it has other vitamins and minerals in there too. So it's kind of like a meal replacement, although we want to use them more as like, in addition to eating meals. Um, (laughs) I like to, and I know a lot of colleagues, actually, they use the premier protein, like the caramel flavored one, and they'll mix it in their coffee. And so they'll have coffee, protein coffee, essentially, and they'll use that instead of creamer. I like that. So um, you mentioned plant-based diets, right? So, um, Tell us about the benefits of plant-based diets for cancer patients and what should our overcomers know in terms of including plant-based fats, proteins, fibers in their everyday dietary plans. And what are your thoughts on, you mentioned dairy as inflammatory, so I was going to ask you on that as well, uh, your thoughts on dairy products and its potentially inflammatory role. Yes. So, I mean, Plants are amazing. Uh, they're superfoods. They have fiber, vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, things you just can't get anywhere else. And they don't have any of the bad things like saturated fat um, or just kind of more of those pro-inflammatory omega-6, which those are found in like in a high amount in processed foods. 
And so having kind of a more whole foods, plant-based diet is, I mean, that's what the data suggests that American Institute for Cancer Research um, that is recommends a whole foods, plant-based diet. That's why we recommend a whole foods, plant-based diet. Um, there's so many interesting components in all of these foods. I would say a really important aspect is fiber. And some foods like beans have um, special fiber, oligosaccharides, and they don't get broken down. They make it all the way to the, to the large intestine and they get fermented. And then they have, there's a trickle down effect of, of short chain fatty acids, but primarily they also are the food for your good gut bacteria. And we are learning more and more each day about how important the microbiome is, yes. your um, kind of gut flora, the good bacteria. And so plants feed the good gut bacteria. Um, a meat sweet diet, so a, a high saturated fat meat, high sugary kind of junk food, that those types of foods feed the bad bacteria. And so people ask about probiotics all the time. And I always you know, you're just buying a random strand and adding it to your kind of ecosystem. My recommendation is just to feed your ecosystem and try to, you know, flourish that with, with plant foods. And so having a good microbiome we're learning is, it impacts the whole body, the, the brain, like, you know, there's all sorts of things that the microbiome is involved with. And so, Caring for that and kind of cultivating your gut <laughs> uh, microbiome with plenty of plant foods that are high in fiber is, um, I think, really important. So uh, you mentioned beans, and I'm going to ask you a question because I've read on the beans and the chia seeds there, although they are fantastic from a fiber standpoint, they have that lectin, right? So on or something on top of their um the skin of the beans and yeah. things, uh, which is potentially uh, could be a problem uh, for the body to absorb. But I have also heard that it may not be. So it, it seems to be a debate out there on the on this particular issue. What what are your thoughts on that? I'm not concerned. Um, as long as you're if you have like um, dry beans, as long as you soak them adequately, or if you buy canned beans, then those are already, you don't have to worry about that. But I'm not concerned. People have been eating beans for years. And in fact, populations that have a higher intake of beans have less, you know, health conditions. And so I'm, as long as you're um, soaking them properly so that you don't get sick from them. Right. And so you also mentioned canned beans, which is like important because most of us probably use that anyway. So those come already rinsed and clear. And cooked, yeah. Yeah. So and, and food is cooked food. Yeah. So for chia seeds, you would not still worry about those either, right? Nope. And I would, you know, soak them or grind them first. So if you just take a spoonful of chia seeds and mix it into your smoothie, it's just going to pass right through you. You're not, your body's not going to break it down. Mm. So if you are going to use them in a smoothie, I say, put them in the blender first and then turn it on and then it'll break 
them so that you can actually <laughs> absorb, absorb them and get some of the nutrition from them. Or if you soak them, then it softens them and they kind of gel. But again, I think chia seeds are great and they have many health properties. I include them in my diet. I'm not worried about. I do too. And I love chia seeds. So that's why I was mm -hmm. like, okay, that, sh that should not be excluded from the diet. So, yes. um, you know, tell us about a little bit about the role of supplements. We talked about it a little bit in designing um, the di optimal diet for our overcomers. And you also mentioned prebiotics and probiotics. And so uh, we know that they have their roles in improving the gut microbiome, et cetera. So, but um, how can they be safely used by our overcomers while in active treatment? And what other supplements would you recommend or not recommend? Um, and also finally, what are your thoughts on vitamin D and vitamin B supplements while in active, active treatment or maybe even through remission? Yeah, great question. I get these types of questions all the time. In general with supplements, I don't recommend them unless we're correcting a deficiency or if I perceive a deficiency in the diet. So for example, if you were lactose intolerant and didn't consume any dairy products, you didn't consume any plant-based dairy products, which are fortified, um, and didn't consume sun-dried mushrooms or fish with bones, I would say, you don't have any vitamin D in your diet. You would benefit from a supplement. Or if you've had lab work done and it shows that you're low in vitamin D, then we can correct it with supplements and then probably just continue a maintenance dose. If you are correcting deficiency though, I would talk with a dietitian or a doctor because you do need, you need like um, 50,000 IU once a week for like eight to 12 weeks. And that requires a prescription, but then you can do like a maintenance just, you know, one to 2000 IU vitamin D daily. Um, you get vitamin D from the sun, but if you live up North, then there's less of that. And then if you're not outside during sunshine or you use um, lots of sunblock for skin cancer prevention, then you might not be converting enough vitamin D. And so vitamin D is definitely one of the supplements that I most commonly do recommend. Vitamin D is a very cool nutrient. It acts almost more like a hormone in the body. And so having, you know, the optimal levels, I think is really important. Um, as far as other supplements, if we're not really correcting efficiency, I don't like to recommend them. There's just not a ton of data that supports that that's beneficial. Um, the way our bodies were made to accept nutrients is not in like a concentrated synthetic form. And so when we take it in a pill form, it's just, it doesn't have the same impact on our body. Our body can't utilize much of it. And that's why when you take a multivitamin and, or a B vitamins and your urine is like yellow or has a smell, it's because they're water soluble and you just, you urinate out a lot of it. Um, and then if you're actively going through treatment, your doctors don't want you taking antioxidants in pill or powder form. So that would be like vitamins A, E, C, um, even like CoQ10, the turmeric and pill form, consuming it is fine. And consuming foods that are high in antioxidants is fine. It's just taking it in pill or powder form. And that's for if you're undergoing radiation or chemotherapy. And the reason is um, the 
the kind of thinking behind it is that those high doses of antioxidants could somehow um, render your treatment less effective, either protecting the cancer from the treatment somehow, or just rendering it less effective because it's so, there's so much antioxidant activity in there. And so if you're actively getting treatment and for four weeks after radiation treatment, I wouldn't take any of those antioxidant supplements. But again, you can, don't have to worry about getting it from foods. Um, I was trying to think of all the questions you asked. Oh, I was <laughs> asking about the pro and the prebiotics also. And they're- Yeah, kind of similar with supplements as far as I do. There are times when a probiotic is recommended, um, but it's to treat something. So if you've just completed a course of antibiotics or you um, had traveler's diarrhea, there's certain things that have kind of demolished your, your own gut microbiome, then using, you know, but the effects of probiotics are strand specific. So Again, I would suggest if you have access to a dietitian or your doctor um, to get recommendations on what might be the best one for you. Um, and there are ones that can are more effective for even like Crohn's disease or treating. So I would, yeah, there are instances when it when it's can be helpful and recommended. And then in general, I I just tell patients to try to work on improving their their own, you know, ecosystem of microbiome with, with feeding it and nourishing it. Um, I would recommend if you are going to get a probiotic, getting one that's like refrigerated and has a very high, um, CPU number or because, you know, as the pill goes through our digestive system, a lot of those bacteria don't make it. So a really high number increases the odds that live bacteria will make it to where it needs to be. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think you, you meant CFU, right? Or something like that. And so- um, Oh yeah, CFU. Yeah, and so for those, I mean, the higher, the, what you're saying is the higher the numbers, the better the chance that some of it will be absorbed by, by your system. So that's good. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So. Um, we talked about post-operative nutrition, right, as well as chemotherapy, um, but in terms of, you know, preparing the body for surgery, um, like this is pre, right, so for surgery or chemotherapy, when it comes to uh, making dietary um, additions or changes, what would you recommend to our overcomers as they prepare for their surgery or their chemotherapy in terms of introducing, you know, some additional um, elements to their diet or taking away a few things that may not be as uh, helpful. So what would be your guidance? Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of talked about surgery um, with patients and related kind of to like preparing for a marathon because the stress of surgery on the body is similar to that in a of a marathon. And so you train for a marathon and you prepare your body for a marathon and actually physical activity is an, an important part of preparing there. I would say there's three main things that you can do to prepare your body for surgery, um, working on your physical fitness, your cardiovascular fitness can be really helpful. And that doesn't, again, just from where you are to 
doing as much as you can to prepare the body. Um, having those strong lung muscles, you're, if you're intubate, I mean, there's so many benefits to working on your cardiovascular fitness and improving it as much as you can prior to surgery. That's going to help you do better during surgery and then also throughout your recovery. And so 30 minutes a day of aerobic activity is, is recommended, but just getting in what you can knowing that every little bit is going to be beneficial and helpful. Another thing that's really important for reducing risk of complications and just helping with a quick speedy recovery is having good blood sugar control. Mm -hmm. And so really getting your blood sugar, um, optimized and kind of corrected before surgery and then continuing that diet of kind of avoiding added sugars and concentrated sweets from like liquid sources, even like juice or soda, um, sweet tea, those are going to really impact blood sugar compared um, to like eating, you know, a whole apple or a sweet potato. Um, that's a complex carbohydrate compared to like right. a simple sugar. Right. Um, so having good blood sugar control, if you are diabetic and on medications, and if those medications aren't quite getting your blood sugar in the range where it needs to be, then working with your doctor to really get good tight blood sugar control beforehand, and then continuing that after surgery, surgery itself can cause hyperglycemia. And so your blood sugars will likely be a little higher after surgery anyway. And so if you are also have insulin resistance or diabetes, then just taking extra care and precaution to keep that as tight as possible. And that helps reduce risk of complications, risk of infection, and also helps speed up recovery. And then the third thing is protein as well. So we wanna build up your protein stores uh, as much as possible. And so, you know, trying to avoid rapid weight loss before surgery, having, you know, avoiding periods of inadequate intake before surgery, because that's going to deplete your stores and we want them built up as much as possible. And so if you have a surgery coming up and you're a lot of times, you know, surgery comes in the middle of chemotherapy, you have chemotherapy and then surgery and then chemotherapy again. And so if side effects are really impacting your ability to take in nutrition and you know, you have a surgery coming up, I would encourage you to find a dietitian or ask, you know, your doctors. There are, if you're wherever you are receiving treatment, doesn't have dietitians, which I would imagine that they do. I would just always ask because we're there. We just might not be as visible. <laughs> um, but if not, then finding resources and you can look online or um, I'm so tempted. I'm like, just call me. I'll help you. <laughs> but just finding someone to help you manage those side effects to help improve your intake to get your body prepared for surgery. Again, sir, there are things that you can't control, but these types of things you do have some control over and getting your body as good as possible for surgery is going to really benefit your future self. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So um, you also, we talked about physical fitness. You talked about physical fitness a little bit. So in your own cancer journey, have you implemented any daily physical fitness routines that you could share with us? And what has worked for you and what inspiration would you like to share with our overcomers in um, staying physically active and fit through the journey of overcoming? I do. I'm going to pop over really quick and grab something. It's just right here. <laughs> 
and I promise I'm not um, paid by this. <laughs> I just really like it. But like I said, I, um, I try to walk every day. It's, it's easy for me to do. Um, I love, I love doing it. And, um, when we have like work challenges, walk challenges, I do so much better. I get in all my steps, um, very consistently, but when we don't have those, I'm a little less motivated. So I found that I need like external motivation, um, to do things. And I do well with like rewards or rankings. Like I'm, I'm doing the best in our walking group. So I guess, you know, targeted ads, my <laughs> social media was, um, showed me about it's called the Concor and it's an online walking challenge and you get to pick like these trails and they're all over the world and then the it's like $30 and the money goes to either planting trees or um, picking up plastic bottles out of the ocean but you get to see your progress and there's little postcards for whatever whatever place you choose and they're just all over the world and you get to learn about it and then at the end you get a really cool medal nice it's like, it like opens oh wow and it's so cool it's beautiful I just love it and you see other people's progress in it um and so that's like kind of motivating community of it's a community thing yeah you can talk with other people and just kind of see where they're going you're like uh oh I'm falling behind I better go on a long walk today um but for me it was just finding external motivation for something to do and I really like this and I think walking is something that everyone can do but not everyone wants that so it's just about finding what you like I also like to do like um I guess there's Zumba, but like on just YouTube dance videos, just to get my cardio in, like if it's raining or the weather's not great, I don't want to be outside, then I'll just do one of those. You know, I don't pay for any service or anything. It's just, well, I pay for YouTube, but um, you can find literally anything you want, any type of dance or any type of, act, you know, exercise. You can be as specific as you want to be. It could be sitting, upper body. I mean, and there'll be a video on it. So, and the, again, those are the things you could use your phone or your iPad or, or a TV, but those are things you can do at home without having to sign up for anything or drive anywhere. That's a lot of times a big barrier for people is, you know, if I have to like get dressed and drive to the gym and blah, 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 it can be easy to talk yourself out of it, but doing things in the home kind of makes it much easier. And then it's just about establishing a habit. It's everything is hard at first. It's hard to take that first step. But once you start doing it, you do find like, oh my God, I do feel better. I do have a clear mind. I do have more energy. And that kind of helps with the more energy you have, the more active you are, the more active you are, the more energy you have. So it's, it can be an upward spiral. It can also go the other way. So if you have spiraled down, just know that you can spiral back up. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, those suggestions. And I completely agree with your point where you said it's so much easier if it's at home, because if I have to drive every day to go to a gym, chances are I'm not going to do it. Just You're going to make up excuses yeah. and it's not going to happen. So yeah. <laughs> I am much better of doing it at home because it's at, you know, at my own pace and whenever I can kind of a thing. So hundred percent with that so now this is a curious question I had so I've visited a few hospitals as a visitor I've been in hospitals and situations and so um 
I've seen the food that is typically served at hospitals is a far cry from what patients should be having during their treatment or before or after surgery. So I've often wondered, I mean, why do hospitals, and this is across the nation worldwide, right? It's not not even uh, just a few uh, here and there that um, why is the food quality that's served at the hospitals not whole food, not nutritious food, not plant-based food, but it is more of the junk food, right? For the lack of a better yeah. word. So if you were to redesign or provide recommendations to improve, uh, improve the food in the cafeterias and the hospital settings, how would you design it? And what would you introduce that you notice sorely missing today? Okay, great question. I love it. And as someone that has been admitted to the hospital a couple times, the, yes, the food is not great. Although MD Anderson is better than other hospitals, but still across the board, it's not great. And unfortunately it has, I feel like a lot to do. I mean, not, I feel I'm definitely a part of it is money and trying to just find what is the most economical. They're looking at their bottom line processed foods has a longer shelf life um and just ultimately the cost is lower than fresh foods um however fresh foods fresh you know whole fruits and vegetables is what we know is best for the body and especially when you're sick and need healing so my my like plan would be because the cost of trans, you know, transporting fresh fruits and vegetables is a lot. And because the shelf life is so short, they have to be made immediately. And then if they're not consumed, it's they're they've gone bad. That's a loss. So it's a big risk for to have a lot of fresh, you know, produce. However, if they had their own, they grew their own produce right there on site somewhere, even had, you know people, volunteers or um, employees or patients help work in the gardens. That's very therapeutic for a lot of people. But if we grew our own produce, then the, there would be no shipping costs. We could pick them as needed. They would be fresh. And then the quality of, you know, even the nutrient content of the foods would be much higher. And because they're so fresh, it would, they would taste better. And then the, the menu could be a lot healthier exactly. and that because you have to think of cost when you're thinking about these things because you could just say you know <laughs> but I think having it all there would be cost saving and so yeah. that, that's my dream I loved that question by the way that was really good I like no because I have noticed it you know I've been to hospitals as as a visitor I have been uh, you know admitted as well in certain occasions and I've always wondered that for patients who are going through so much and they're recovering and they're, you know, why is the food served to the patients so suboptimal, you know? So that's something that we should continue to push, I guess. And and you're, I loved your idea of growing your own garden and doing your own thing. And, you know, even, even reach out to local farmers for that matter. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, if the transportation costs are prohibitive, at least local farmers sometimes can give the same, you know, supply, but things to right. think about, things to talk, you know, talk upwards or whoever needs to hear it because 
yeah. I've often, often wondered about this. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. So I'm going to go to soy a little bit and uh, nightshade vegetables and, and dairy, right? So sometimes I've read that soy is amazing. Sometimes I've read that they can trigger some inflammatory responses within your body. Now with the nightshade vegetables too, I've heard the same thing. So that it could be good, but in certain situations, it could trigger some inflammatory responses. So talk to us about the role of soy and then also the nightshade vegetables. And would you recommend um, such diets for our overcomers? Uh, why or why not? Yeah, um, with soy, I I have, I believe based on the data that soy is beneficial. I'm a, a cancer survivor, breast and ovarian. I consume soy daily. I don't eat meat. So soy is a, you know, significant portion of my diet, how I get a lot of my protein. Um, and I mean, <laughs> there's just so much data the, the China study that soy is protective. It helps reduce risk of recurrence. It can, you know, extend um, prognoses and 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 has um, preventative benefits. Especially if women, if young girls consume soy before puberty, um, there's a huge preventative imp um, effect. <laughs> And so that's why a lot of Asian cultures have very low risk of breast cancer because they've consumed soy throughout their lifespan. Um, where there is problems with soy is when it's processed or in a very concentrated form because it's been processed. And so it's you're getting it at a level that you could never, would never get from eating foods alone. If like um, soy protein isolate is the number one ingredient in a food product that you consume all day, every day, there, there is one type of diet where they send you the packaged foods. It's like a weight loss program and everything is packaged. Um, and, and every first ingredient is soy protein isolate. Cause I had a, a breast cancer patient that was on this diet and I had to I had to tell her that I do not recommend this diet for you. That is too much because if you have a very high amount, it can start to be pro-estrogenic. Um, and if you have estrogen sensitive cancers, then that can be pro-cancerous, but that's getting it from a, you know, a concentrated processed form. That's why like supplements, sometimes they're, um, marketed for, um, like menopause symptoms, the soy pro or isoflavones or things, you can get way too much of that in a pill than you could getting it. You would need like 20 cups of soy beans in one sitting, which is just not gonna happen. <laughs> so it's, it's self-limiting when it's in food form, but very easy to take two pills and get, you know, 10,000% right. of what you would need. And when you get that amount, it can start to have the, the pro estrogenic base. So soy in the, in the form of like edamame or soy milk or temp or tofu, um, beneficial, I would say in, in the U S soy is a GMO food. And so not that GMO is inherently bad, but it can be, 
in this example, um, GMO soy requires much higher amounts of pesticide than, than conventionally grown soy. And so because of that, I always try to choose organic soy. It's going to have less pesticide residue um, for that reason. Um, but I do consume soy regularly. The nightshades, you know, these are vegetables that, and I like to think that all plants are good, but we're all unique snowflakes and some people are more sensitive and do kind of notice that they have more inflammation or feel worse or they have, you know, their body doesn't react well to certain nightshades. Mm -hmm. And in that case, then I say, yes, it's like, if it hurts, don't do it. So if your body is saying this, we don't get along <laughs> together, this, we have a, a negative reaction that causes, you know, inflammation or just more stress in the body, then I would say avoiding it. But as a, you know, a blanket, nobody eat nightshades. I don't recommend. What was the other one? Milk, um, dairy, sugar, sugar. Yes. Okay. And then yes, added sugar. So this is a question I get a lot. Sugar feeds cancer. And that is a, a very simplified statement to a very complex process. And I would say that that is not true, except for certain types of cancers, mostly like brain cancer. So geoblastoma, there is a, a known association between high sugar, you know, intake because of the blood brain barrier. So following a low, you know, a keto diet, in addition to chemotherapy has been shown to be helpful for those specific cancers. But in general, the impact is it's a indirect relationship. So excess sugar intake results in weight gain, being overweight or obese increases the risk for many cancers, you know, ovarian cancer and breast cancer being two of them. And so that is kind of very, it's a far, you know, being overweight from excess sugar intake increases risk versus the sugar you consume is feeding your cancer, it, which a lot of patients get really like stressed out. Like, how can I eliminate sugar? My diet It's everywhere. Every time I eat it, it's feeding my cancer. And that's just not necessarily the case. However, to follow a healthy diet, we do recommend avoiding added sugars. And that is like white table sugar that's been added to foods. Um, and now the labels, they didn't in the past, but now they, they specify added sugars. And so there's total carbohydrates, fiber, sugars, which was all they had before. And that could have been sugars found in the food naturally or added sugar, but now they specify right. added sugars. And so if you're comparing two foods, you know, looking the added sugars, which one's lower, which one has none, um, and choosing those. And did you, and then milk or dairy, was that one of yeah, them? Yeah, I was, I was, you know, curious about that because with ovarian cancer, you know, dairy has a very um, uh, conflicting role as well, because I've heard many things about dairy not being good or dairy being good. Generally, as an overcomer yourself, what, what are your thoughts on dairy? Yes, for ovarian cancer specifically and breast cancer, I'll, I'll put them together for this. Um, my top recommendation would be to limit or avoid dairy. 
under that would be just choosing lower fat, low saturated fat dairy options. And then also if you, when you have the ability to, and when it's an option choosing organic dairy, yeah. um, organic versus conventional, I think you get way more bang for your buck, way more benefit when choosing organic meat and dairy, organic produce, the benefits of eating fruits and vegetables kind of outweigh the potential risks from pesticide residue, but with meat and dairy, 90% of the contaminants, pollutants, pesticides, dioxins come from meat and dairy. So if you choose organic, just those, then you're eliminating like 90% of, of the bad things that you could be getting. And so those animals are also fed organic food um, and they're sometimes not given things that, you know, others. So I would recommend that. And then with dairy, I mean, it's just, <laughs> we weren't made to consume the milk of another animal well into adulthood. Everyone will eventually become lactose intolerant. We just kind of lose the lactase enzyme. Um, so as we get older, you might find that dairy and cheese affect you differently and that's normal. Um, and again, it's because we're not really supposed to consume that much dairy outside of being like an infant. Um, one thing I like, to, just, a, I don't know, an interesting thing. If you think about a baby calf um, and their weight and what they do in one year, just on a milk diet, that milk diet that they're drinking from their mother, they grow exponentially. They gain, you know, their growth is, is crazy. And so we're consuming that pretty regularly. You know, there are insulin like growth factors. There are all sorts of things that are in dairy that are kind of pro growth. And in a cancer scenario, we want to try to limit that. So, and then saturated fat, um, there is association with saturated fat and, and hormone mediated cancers. So I would say, again, if you drink it every once in a while, not concerned. If you do drink it, then choose lower fat and try to choose organic. And then if you can substitute or even just, you know, somewhat with plant alternatives, plant-based milks, or um, I guess just, yeah, plant-based milks, then those are, you know, saturated fat-free. They're from plants. Some of them have a ton of added sugars and are not as good, but you can be a little, um, you know, food label sleuth and find the best options. So, so on the uh, plant-based, uh, you know, milk or uh, yogurt, I had a question about coconut, right? Coconut could be high on saturated fat, but, you know, yet it's plant-based. So the saturated fat from the coconut, is it, is it okay? Is it not harmful? Is it fine to just, you know, still consume? And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Right. So coconut is the only plant-based source of saturated fat. Um, and you will see saturated fat in like processed foods and you're like, but there's not dairy or meat, but it's from palm oil. Palm oil is cheap and provides good mouthfeel and shape shelf stability. So it's in a lot of processed foods. So being aware of that and looking at the label on processed foods too, knowing that that could be a source of saturated fat for you. Um, 
the coconut milk that is like in the milk section, it's very watered down. The saturated fat is very low. Co canned coconut milk um, can be very high in saturated fat. But again, if you're cooking with that and using that in place of another fat, I mean, I think it's okay to have, but if like you have cereal every morning and you are consuming a lot of coconut milk, I would just, I would just count it towards your, you know, kind Overall. of mental, yeah. your, your saturated fat intake. Um, was there another part of the question? Did I answer your question? Yeah, you did. And that was, uh, that was what I was asking because I was curious about the saturated fat in the coconut. And just finally, uh, your thoughts on gluten, anything, does it matter for our overcomers to be gluten-free or not really? Not really, unless you have a gluten intolerance. Um, there's a lot of gluten-free products now, and I don't know why people think that makes it a health product, but they're just processed foods. They just use other flours that is not wheat flour. But, you know, celiac is a autoimmune, yes. complete, you know, intolerance to gluten. And then there are some that are just don't have celiac, but tend to have GI issues after consuming large amounts of gluten. So they're just kind of gluten intolerant. And I would say in that setting too, if it hurts, don't do it. It sounds like their body isn't reacting well to gluten. And so if in fact it is gluten, I would, I always recommend keeping like a food journal symptom tracker, even just for like a period of three days, because it can really help identify patterns and find, you know, problem foods and really find culprits a lot of times. Um, but if it does seem like gluten is, is causing you GI issues, then yeah, definitely getting it out of your diet. But if, if you don't have issues with gluten tolerance, then there's no reason to avoid it. That's what I was asking. So overall, there is no need when you're going through a cancer journey and treatment and diagnosis to be gluten-free. It's only if you're reacting to it, then mm -hmm. talk to your dietitian about that. So thank you so very much on that. So I've asked you a lot of questions, uh, Christy. What have I missed asking you about the anything mind-body intervention techniques that you would like to share? I'm going to go back to kind of what I said at the beginning was stress management, because you can't avoid stress, but how you manage it, you do have some control over. And, you know, while you can't, you know, you, the main thing is just not denying it or ignoring it, but figuring out what stress management looks like to you. Um, problem solving, is that preventative planning? Is that, you know, accepting help from others? Me having the unique experience of two cancer diagnoses at different times in my life. Uh, the, the first time when I was 30, um, I didn't want help from anyone. I wore a wig all the time. I didn't want anyone to know I was going through treatment. I was, that was, you know. And then the second time um, I was a little older and just, I accepted help. I mean, it is, it's your family and friends prerogative to help you know, it's how they deal with your cancer diagnosis. So to not accept their help is kind of, you know, doing them wrong, but also, you know, it's going to take some things off your plate, which ultimately is good. And so, um, if accepting help is going to help with your stress management, that's good. Exercise is a great outlet for stress management, but just, you know, not ignoring it, finding a way to, to manage it. And, um, 
just knowing that your friends and family, when they're offering help, it is how they're dealing with your diagnosis. So, you know, if you aren't just naturally inclined to accept help, my suggestion would be to at least give it a try because I do think it's, it's helpful for everyone. Wonderful. That's a great suggestion. Thank you. So in just in closing, uh, what message of overcoming would you like to share with all our overcomers listening today? I impress myself time and time again. Patients impress me time and time again. When we are faced with difficult things that we feel like we can't do, um, just know that you can. We can. You do them because you have to, and you're going to get through them. And don't hesitate to, to utilize available resources to help you get through them. Um, but just knowing that. And then when I, this just came to mind, when I was at my very first um, MD Anderson appointment, um, I was sitting there probably looking anxious and a volunteer came and sat next to me and she said, just know that your fears about, you know, what's going to happen generally are worse than what really happens. And for the most part, that's true. That's true in all aspects of life. And so I would say just know that you are strong and that it's probably not going to be as bad as you think um, and accept help from others and, and we'll get through this. That's wonderful. Thank you so very much for this fantastic advice and guidance that you gave. And it was great talking to you, Christy. And just, just uh, you know, not just from the diet standpoint, we learned so much from you, but also the fact that as an overcomer yourself, you bring this unique perspective to the table because you have lived it and you're still living it and overcoming every day. And so thank you so very much for your time and all the knowledge that you that you shared freely with us and overcomers hope this was a uh, you know a greatly beneficial episode for you i know that as we always say we learn so much from all these experts that come and talk to us freely about and share their knowledge with us especially christy being an overcomer herself her um you know her perspective was so unique and so wonderful so thank you for joining us today and we'll be back with the next episode of connect over coffee very soon until then you keep inspiring and keep overcoming thank you and bye thank you for joining us make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now this podcast is made possible by our sponsors gsk and clovis oncology and by listeners like you thank you for your support